Why don't you turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, please. Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verse 12 and 13. And the message is entitled, Reason Alone Misunderstands God. There are biblical truths that cannot be reconciled by man through human logic or reasoning. It has been said that our faith is reasonable, but is not based on reason alone. Anselm said, quote, I believe in order to understand. I believe God's revelation of the gospel, and afterwards I'm able to understand the truth of God. Not the reverse. I do not believe because I'm so smart and able to figure it out. Some of God's truths are irreconcilable with human logic and reasoning. Once we're born again, he gives us the mind of God. He gives us the spirit of God and the word of God. Habakkuk had two problems, as you know, with God in chapter 1 in the form of complaints. The first had to do with the inactivity of God about the sin of Judah. And we saw that last week in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. So God, in response, informed Habakkuk that he was going to be astounded and that he wasn't going to believe what God was about to reveal to him in verse 5. He warns him before he tells him. And then God revealed that Habakkuk, that he was not inactive about the evil of Judah, that he was going to use this fearful, ruthless, and cruel, idolatrous nation to judge Judah. And he describes in vivid detail who she is, Babylon, in verse 6 to 11 and 14 through 17. That we'll look more closely tonight in our verse by verse. Now hearing this, Habakkuk presents his second problem complaining to God about his present activity now of using Babylon to punish Judah. (laughs) So God can't win either way, right? First he's inactive, now he's too active. It's characterized by three things here. Let me read verse 12 and 13. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours the person more righteous than he? Wow. The second problem that... Habakkuk complains to God about is his present activity using Babylon. It's characterized by the following. First, the nature of God in verse 12, the beginning, based on the nature of God. Second, the nature of the covenant of God, the rest of 12. And thirdly, the nature of the justice of God. So the prophet Habakkuk begins here with the nature of God. Notice the prophet Habakkuk could not reconcile how God could use Babylon based on this person. Habakkuk responds to the revelation of God in protest with a rhetorical question. We've gone through many rhetorical questions here. Listen to him. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? There's only one correct answer. Yes. Absolutely. So the prophet marked the sharp contrast between God and man here. God is eternal and infinite. Man is temporal and finite. The thought of God being one with evil of Babylon confused Habakkuk. The confusion of the prophet is expressed in prayer. Here in chapter 1 we've noticed. The perception of the prophet is going to be cleared up by prayer in chapter 2. And the revelation to the prophet is revealed through prayer in chapter 3. And he ends up in faith. It's all through prayer. This book is all about prayer. Having ear to hear. Not to argue with God. Now God understands and we go before him and we go, oh, I don't know why he doesn't. He, he, doesn't, he never says, I can't believe he's going to say that. I never knew that. But we go to God. And complain to him. <laughs> Notice Habakkuk identified himself one with God by his personal relationship. O Lord, my God. The Lord, there is all capital letters, is Yahweh, the covenant name. When Pharaoh um, would ask the name of the God of Moses, God said, 
This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations, Exodus 3.15. What is it? Yahweh. All capital letters in your New King James or King James is Yahweh, the covenant name. But not only by his personal relationship, notice by his personal knowledge about his God. Listen, my Holy One. He knows his God. He knows exactly who his God is. Yahweh was different from all other pagan gods. Yahweh was holy in his person and worship. Habakkuk lived such a life. He has access to God. God is speaking to him. Notice the prophet Habakkuk understood that these two natural attributes are possessed by God alone. There's communicable attributes and non-communicable. There are some attributes that God alone has that he does not impart to us. He imparts to us grace and goodness and, and other words. Not, but there's some that apply unto him. He's infinite. He's eternal. We're not. Notice the word everlasting that means antiquity or ancient time. The eternal attribute of God's nature is contrary to linear chronological time as we know it. It is a permanent state of his being. He just is, always has been, always will be. When we think about eternity, we usually think about a quantity of time that never ends, and though that is true in and of itself, it has more to do with quality of time, so different than ours. A perpetual duration has neither beginning nor end, has nothing to do with growth, development, maturity, for it is immutable in state, meaning it never changes. The grace of God is immutable. All the sins that have ever been forgiven and will be forgiven has not diminished it one iota. You go down to the Pacific Ocean, you take a five-gallon bucket, you pull up some gas, you just diminish the Pacific Ocean by five gallons. All the sins of the world have not affected the grace of God. It's immutable. He is immutable. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will change. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Hebrews 1.12, quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. This earth is going to be like a cloak, like a garment being wrapped up. But he's forever. Now, angels and souls are said to be everlasting and will exist forever in that they will live on in eternity with God or separated from God. But they are not eternal in and of themselves. For angels and man had a beginning from their creator, though they will have no end. Do you see the difference? He always has been. There's not a point or a time where he will never be. We weren't always. We had a point in time when we were, and yet we will always be, with God or apart from God. Big difference. Jesus is the Son of God. You and I are sons and daughters of God. Big difference between the Son and a Son. <laughs> People will spend eternity either in the presence of God or the lake of fire, we're told, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John three fourteen through 15. Jesus picks up that text out of the book of Numbers and puts it together in the New Testament and gives us the interpretation of that prophetic symbolism. You and I could have never done that. He interpreted it for us. Moses, putting that pole in his wilderness, was sin being judged at the cross back in the wilderness. A serpent brass, brass judgment, serpent sin, the pole, the cross. Jesus says, that's about me. Wow. Notice Habakkuk declared, my holy one, referring to the moral purity of God unto perfection, belonging to the glorious nature of God, separate from sinful man. The first time the word holy appears is when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He said to him, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is what? Holy ground, Exodus 3.5. The word holy is found 45 times in Exodus, 77 times Leviticus, 32 times in Numbers, 20 times in Deuteronomy. Wow. That should be enough to get you through holiness. <laughs> First five books. 
Some have called the attribute of holiness the attribute of all attributes. Others think it's not even an attribute, but his very essence. The word holy and holiness are used in the Old Testament and New Testament as the attribute the most, that mostly glorifies God as well as standing out in Scripture very, very clearly. The very fact that God is holy is declared and alluded to throughout the Old Testament. There isn't a book that you cannot read that you will not bump into it. All of them. God told Adam, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. Genesis 2.17. He's giving right from wrong. He says, if you don't eat, you'll remain holy. If you eat, you'll be unholy. Literally what he was saying. After the destruction of the Egyptian army, they sang the song of Moses, as you know. He says, who is like you, O Lord Yahweh, among the gods? Small g. Who is like you? glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders, Exodus fifteen eleven. holiness. God says, for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creepeth on the earth, for I am the Lord Yahweh who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You therefore shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter picks it up in First Peter in the New Testament. Joshua exhorts the people, serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Joshua 24, 19. Holy is his name. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Psalm 33, 21. Psalm 99, verse 3. Isaiah, as you know, saw his own unholiness before God, seeing the holiness of God in his temple, his throne, high and lifted up. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. And God had a cherubim take a coal from the altar, touch his lips. He said, who should I send? And Isaiah said, send I. And he touched them, cleansed them, and sent them in Isaiah 6, 6 through 7. The word holy appears in Isaiah 54 times. Holy. God is called the Holy One of Israel 30 times in Isaiah, and only 20 times in the rest of the Old Testament. God says in Ezekiel 39, 7, who also deals with the holiness of God, that book. He says, so I will make my, peop- my, name, um, my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anywhere. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. As you know, Ezekiel opens up with the temple of God, the throne of God, holy, cherubim, seraphims, everything else. Chapter 9, he said again, the Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed from the temple. All of that comes in. Amazing. The new millennial temple from chapter 40 to 48, the glory of the Lord, God returns during the thousand year reign. Jesus reigns on the earth. Ezekiel was told by God, Teach my people between holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean, Ezekiel 44, 23. Of course, that context is the millennial kingdom. Amos, if you remember, tells us that the Lord will swear by his holiness in Amos 4, 2. Those are just some of the passages of the Old Testament. The New Testament is no different. The angel told Mary, and the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One, he says, The Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke one thirty five. The demon-possessed man in the synagogue, the Nazareth, remember, said, Let us alone... What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Luke 4, 34. Peter said to the witnesses that saw the healing of the lame man, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Acts three fourteen. Paul says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwells in an unapproachable God who, is, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. First Timothy 6, 15 through 16. 
For our God is what? A consuming fire. Holiness. Hebrews 12, 29. So from Genesis to Revelation, we can go on and on. Listen to a definition from a pupil of the Institute of the Dumb in Paris regarding being eternal. Quote, It is duration without beginning or end, existence without bounds or dimensions, present without past or future, his eternity is youth without infancy or old age, life without birth or death, today without yesterday or tomorrow. That's good. You get the point? It just is. <laughs> God always has been perfect holiness. The eternity of God is throughout the scriptures. He is called the everlasting God in Genesis 21:33. The eternal God, Deuteronomy 33:27. His name will endure forever, Psalm 72:17. He is from everlasting to everlasting, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. Time out of mind, if you will. Psalm 90, verse 2. He is contrasted to the temporal things of his creation in Psalm 102, 24 through 27, and in many other Psalms. I am that I am the beginning one, the becoming one, having no beginning, no ending. Exodus 3:14. Isaiah calls him the eternal father in Isaiah 9, 6. So you don't have to wait till the New Testament. He calls him there. Jeremiah calls him the living God and eternal king in Jeremiah 10, 10. And Daniel tells us that his kingdom and dominion are eternal. Daniel 4, 3, and 34. You see the attribute of being eternal is a quality that is shared by the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the eternal God, refers to the Father in Deuteronomy 33, 27, and many other passages. The Ancient of Days refers to the Father in Daniel 7, 13. The Son, to the King eternal and mortal, refers to Jesus Christ, as we read there in, in, in 1 Timothy 1, 17. Jesus said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. The third person of the Spirit, David said, where can I go from your Spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139.7. Nowhere. If I go down to hell, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. The eternal Spirit is said of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 9. 14, eternal. And so the entire law reminded Israel of God's holiness. The people could not approach Mount Zion at the giving of the laws, you know. Exodus 19, 12 says, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And you know, there was some that were, they still, they didn't obey. So God struck them. Exodus 19, 6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The entire tabernacle and priesthood exude with the uh, represented holiness of God and the things of God. The tabernacle was a vivid picture of the holiness of God, unapproachable, separate. And that separation came by a veil between the holy and the most holy in Exodus 26, 33. The high priest alone could enter the holy of holies once a year after many washings and sacrifices to approach lest he be stricken dead by God. Then it would appear over the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory of God. Leviticus 16.2 The golden mitre would be worn by the high priest on his forehead. It said, Holiness to the Lord. There were bells on his hem, on the garment of that high priest. As long as that bell was sounding, he was moving, doing the work 
of the tabernacle. See, there was no chairs in the tabernacle because the work of the law was never done. It all spoke of the rest to come in Jesus Christ. So he was always moving. And when he was moving, the bell was ringing, ringing, ringing. They were all around his hem. If the bell stopped ringing, God killed him. He wasn't right. Real simple. Next. It was hard to get priest insurance. All of Scripture spoke of the shadows and of good things to come in Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews is a perfect example of it. It interprets to us all of those prophetic things, particularly the priesthood of Jesus, the sacrifices, in particular chapter 8 through 10. But in Hebrews twelve eighteen, it says, For you have not come to the mountain that, that may be touched and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. In other words, we're not approaching the mountain like Mount Sinai. We come to the God through Jesus Christ. It's approachable. John said, Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world in John one twenty nine. He was that go-between, that mediator, the sacrifice. The Christian, therefore, has boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10.19. Not on our own, but by the blood of Jesus Christ that is holy, pure, sinless, atoning all of our sins. Peter calls the church a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people, his possession in 1 Peter 2.9. Man, the nature of God is eternally holy. Habakkuk understood this. Now you understand why he has a problem? God, holy, Babylon, bad news. Together? Uh -uh. Wow. But I know you don't have problems like that with God, so let's move to the second point. Notice the nature of the covenant of God comes next. Um, the prophet Habakkuk indirectly implies their privileged position of the covenant. Habakkuk made his proclamation of faith and hope. We shall not die. Wow. Now, Habakkuk is not saying God was not going to judge Judah. For they had apostatized. Some believe the correct reading should be, you shall not die referring to God. But this would make no sense because the context is that God is eternal. You wouldn't say this about God. So he's talking about we, Judah. He was clinging to the promise of God in the midst of doubt in the horrific judgment to come upon them. You and I do that all the time. Man, when everything's going good, man, oh, God's good. Oh, yeah, you just got to trust him, brother, this and that. And all of a sudden, somehow, we're going, I don't know. Is God doing this and that? We're just like Habakkuk and the rest. We all have feet of clay. We're, we're basically just dirt. If you add a little water, we're just a mud ball. But when things are good, man, I am strong. I am, what's the matter? You wimp, don't you have faith in God? But then it happens to me. Oh, my God, what's going on here? God shows us we're, we're nothing but a frail vessel, right? That's why we need to look, keep our eyes on the Lord. We need each other to exhort one another, to confront one another, to pray for one another. Yahweh is the Holy One. He cannot lie. So, Yahweh promised the prophet and through the minor prophets as we've seen in the major prophet that, that um, repeatedly he has talked about the remnant of Israel. So at this point, Habakkuk said, we will not die. Why? He knows about the remnant. God said that he would not turn his back on his people, right? But not all the say are Israel, Israel, right? Paul picks that up in Romans, right? There's a remnant. So God can't lie. Habakkuk knew the northern kingdom had already been judged by God through Assyria, the rod of his anger, according to Isaiah 10.5. Many certainly were allowed uh, to die by the very hand of God through that judgment. And some of them were righteous, righteous people. But when they died in judgment, they went directly to the bosom of the father, Abraham, right? Because the rain falls on the unjust, right? Do you think only bad people died in Nazi Germany? Do you think only Jews died there? No, many Christians died. Millions of Christians died too. 
When God's judgment comes, but we go instantly present before the Lord. Those who don't know God go instantly present separated from God. There's, there's a the big difference. Notice Habakkuk had just been upset with God and complained to him because he thought God was doing nothing about Judah's sin. That was his first problem. So he's complaining about God. I don't know what you're doing, God. You know, you're not doing this and that. But, but you and I have done that. Well, what's going on? Lord, I've done this. I've done that. And all of a sudden, why would you allow this? This and that. We do the same thing. Now that Habakkuk knows how much God is acting and he's involved then to bring judgment on Judah through Babylon, he doesn't like it either. So he clings to the promise of God, right? So Habakkuk pulls the covenant card by the name of Yahweh. All capital letters, Lord. They were the covenant people of God. Delivered and redeemed from Egypt, entering covenant with God. In Exodus 24, 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord Yahweh has said we will do, and he and be obedient. Liars. They didn't. In fact, God told Moses before he went to the promised land, they're not going to obey me. Can you imagine? You're the leader. You get them out. You've gone through 40 years. These guys have, have, have caused you not to enter the promised land. And God says, they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna go away from me. Are you kidding me? Sheesh. <laughs> the blessings and obedience, through obedience are listed for us. As well as the cursings through disobedience in Deuteronomy 27, 28. You read the cursings. God says, I will burn you. I will go after you. I will put diseases on you. I will chase you. I will hunt you down. Whoa, who's he talking to? His people. Notice the prophet Habakkuk directly now declared the position of the non-covenant Gentiles. Habakkuk acknowledged that the holiness of Yahweh demands his wrath and one day it would be upon the Babylonians. You have appointed them for judgment. The Gentiles did not know God, but worshiped the various gods, as you know. In the land, the word appointed there means to set or place or to put for judgment. This took place in the future through Medo-Persia. Remember, Babylon's the head of gold. Medo-Persia, the arms and shoulders of silver. So Babylon's going to be used to judge Judah. Medo-Persia to judge Babylon. Greece to judge Medo-Persia, Rome to judge uh, Greece, <laughs> so on and so forth. God's in control. He's using these nations. The Babylonians worship the forces of nature. And Lil, the god of the earth, for instance, was worshipped in the earliest periods of Nippur. Ea, the god of the deep at Eridu, Nana, the um, moon god at Ur, and by the way, Abraham came out of Ur, the Chaldees. Uda, the sun god at Larsa, and so on and so forth. You have the same thing with the pagan gods that ruled the Gentiles there in the land of Canaan, the various Baals, the gods of the valley, the gods of the mountains, Molech, Astra, the fertility gods of sexual pleasure. But the Gentiles were living a debauched, sinful life that was offensive to God. But they were not ignorant. Not ignorant at all. The people of the land had been judged by God through Israel when the abomination of desolation came to full time as God told Abraham in Genesis fifteen sixteen, Abraham, I cannot give you the land for 430 years. Until the abomination of desolation, uh, the abomination of the Amorites comes completion. Now, that means that God gave the land, the people in the land, in a way that you and I do not know, nor are we told. But God warned them and gave them 430 years to repent. That's a long time. I've told you God never brings judgment before. He gives warning, right? Then when they cross that line, then God used Israel, the Exodus, to come and judge them through God's destruction of them. Real simple. 
The judgment of God was still on them. The word judgment, mispah, involves all aspects of judicial case, the process, the procedure, the verdict, even the sentence. You see, they weren't ignorant. God had, you remember Moses' father-in-law? Jethro? What, what did he do? He offered sacrifice. Are you kidding me? You ever read anybody else offer sacrifice that wasn't supposed to? God barbecued him. That means God ministered to other people too, right? Simple. Simple. Now Habakkuk, notice, acknowledged God was going to use Babylon to judge Judah. O rock, you have marked them for correction. The one in position of judge is Yahweh, called the rock. This is a key metaphor used for God. The idea in this context is strength and crushing ability to destroy. Jesus said, um, whoever falls upon this stone or rock will be broken. But whoever it falls upon, they shall be crushed in Luke twenty eighteen. So God, by the metaphor of rock, speaks of stability, strength, one you can depend on. But in this context, he's going to crush him. He brings judgment. The one being judged, notice, is Judah, the people of God, by using the Babylonians. The statement, you have marked them for correction, does not refer to Babylon's judgment again. But Judah. The phrase marked them means to fix firmly. God had established and determined to use the Babylonians to be the instrument to chastise his people. Judah. Now he's holy. He's eternal. The decision he makes, I may not like it. It may not make sense to me. Tough. He makes perfect decisions without violating his attributes. He doesn't have to explain to me anything. The word correction confirms this as it means to reprove, correct, or chasten. The implication is that the Gentiles had no excuse. They had knowledge and opportunity. But what did they do with that? They rejected Yahweh. To those much is given, much required. Measure of light. The book of Romans says that when they knew God, they didn't want to glorify him as God, but they became futile in their own imaginations, worshiping the creature more than the creator, which is blessed forevermore, even changing the women, changing the natural use of men with women and women with men, going to women with women, men with men, receiving the just due and the judgment to them because it was not fitting what they practiced. When they knew God, they didn't want to retain him as God. Nobody's ignorant. Nobody's ignorant. Creation, conscience, and history. Busted. Babylon went all the way back to the book of Genesis. The name Shinar means country between two rivers, Tigris and the Euphrates. Shinar is one of the cities that, in the beginning of the kingdom of Babel, recorded in Genesis, as you know, uh, built the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10.10, confusion, destruction, uh, because of the rebellion against God. God says, I want you to spread the land, and all will gather together and make a worship center to get to God. God confused the languages and scattered them. Babel, destruction, confusion. The ancient name of the territory known as as Babylon and the Chaldeas. That's its, its roots in Genesis. It's mentioned second to Jerusalem through the Bible. Babylon. It ends up in the book of Revelation. Babylon, the mother of harlots, right? The other Gentile nations in Canaan were equally not ignorant about Yahweh. They had heard how Yahweh had judged the gods of Egypt. They had heard how God had divided the Red Sea and the Jordan at flood season. They had heard how God had made the wall of Jericho come tumbling down. But what did they do? They didn't believe. They didn't repent. It's a choice they made, right? There's no ignorance. Do you think it's any different today? Of course not. It's the same thing. We are willfully ignorant today, as Peter says. People think they're so smart, they have rationalized God away. Look to the conclusion of our, of our morality and ethics of our society. It is so destructive 
in every way. Where judges give six months probation to a man who rapes a young girl. And the father of that young man is crying because he thinks that the, the, the time they've been given to him is inappropriate to the time that really he would have enjoyed or whatever he did. What kind of sick mind do you have, both from the father of that son and the judge? The problem we've had, ladies and gentlemen, is our leaders. Now it's no longer just the leaders, it's the people. There's the big problem. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And you think God is holy? You better believe he is. Do you think he's winking at our sin? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. The compassion of the covenant God is evident by the a key verse in Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 18. Listen, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord Yahweh, though your sins are red as, are like, like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The covenant God, pleading, crying out, reasoning with his people to repent. The corruptness of man is evident by the second, or, or a second verse in Isaiah Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Let me give you the literal translation that's only translated accurately by one translation, which I don't consider a Bible, the Jehovah Witness one. Our righteousness are as a filthy menstrual garment. It's not something you talk about. It's not something you display. You get rid of it right away. That's how good or bad is. Or how bad our good is. Whichever way you want to look at it. Pretty vivid, the Bible. And God is saying, do you agree with me? Well, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm not so bad. No. Unless I agree with God. He doesn't talk to me. Are we clear on this? The judgments of God attest to his holiness. He expelled Adam and Eve from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Nadab and Abihu thought they had a little boons for him and they, he barbecued them on the first sacrifice in Leviticus 10. They sell boons for himself anymore? I don't know. It's been 40-some years. Um, God said, I will be sanctified in them that come to me. Holiness. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus was because they rejected the Holy One. Matthew 23, 37, 39. Jesus said... You shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. What tragic words. Ananias, the fire, light of the Holy Spirit, played hypocrites, Acts 5. God struck him dead. The holiness of God should, be, should strike an awe in all of us. Any one of us who would take sin and take it as a casual attitude. His holiness cannot be tolerated. Listen, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. Who is he speaking to? believers. Don't let anybody tell you that the book of Hebrews is to non-believers. If they do, call them liars. Brother, brethren, brethren, brethren. God will judge his people. book of Hebrews is to Christians, the Hebrews who became Christians. They were going back to animal sacrifice. God says, what are you doing there? There's no atonement there anymore. Only in my son. And if you drift, and if you go away, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Are we clear on this? Hmm. Hell and everyone and every other place of temporal abode is a witness to God's holiness. Jesus said, Gehenna is a place for everlasting fire prepared for Satan and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one. Jesus taught hell, which is Sheol of the Old Testament and Hades of the Greek and the New, is a place for departed spirits and their holiness is seen by the separation between the saved and the unsaved. The place of torment, the place of comfort, right? Holiness is implied right there. Peter says Tartarus is a place where the angels that left their first estate are chained in darkness. In Second Peter 2.4, they led a rebellion against God. And these are so vile that God has enchained them there. Not to be let loose. 
John says the lake of fire or Gehenna is the final abode of every believer who lives apart from God's holiness. And that eternal death, hell, and Satan will be cast there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 through 15. You see, the eternal abode of the unrighteous, having not trusted in the holy sacrifice and work of Jesus for them on the cross, is eternal punishment. There is no rest, night and day. Revelation 14, 10 through 11. People say, well, I, 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 I can't agree with that. A God of love, you know, night and day. Come on, let's not get too heavy. It's spiritual. It's just figurative. Really? God lives in eternity. You and I live in day and night. And he wrote it so that you and I can understand that day and night means 24 hours. Simple. Let's not think we're smart. See, people pick and choose what they like in the Bible, right? No, you got to eat all of it. It's like your kid, you know. You eat the vegetables along with the burrito. You eat it all. You don't become selective. You, you take it all. The nature of the covenant of God was for living holy. You understand the problem of Habakkuk here? <laughs> God's holy. Babylon is just wicked. Now notice comes the nature of the justice of God. Verse 13. The prophet Habakkuk, even though he had argued with God's revelation or agreed with it, I mean, he's, to an extent he says, okay, uh, he could not reconcile God having again the affiliation of dealing with Babylon because of their evil. And so Habakkuk declared God could not be one with evil. He says, you are of pure eyes and to behold evil. God was the epitome of holiness, a, ho a holy God that cannot be one with sin. And we understand this. But Habakkuk's going through this thing and he's trying to make these things come together. The word behold means to inspect or consider or to tolerate it. So he says, no, you can't tolerate such thing, God. You're holy. And though God certainly sees and perceives and is aware of all evil, he is in no way partaking of it. Habakkuk declared God could not be one to approve the evil, listen to his words, and cannot look on wickedness. God can never put his seal of approval on sin. The word look means to show regard with some sense of approval or condoning it. God neither approves one sin from another as if one is worse than another. All sin is contrary to him. We say, well, that wasn't that bad. It'll kill you. God will judge you for it. One sin. Enough to send you. If you're born to this world, you got a sin nature, that's enough to send you to hell. So we say, well, that was not bad. Well, ooh, that was about. God says, it's all bad. But see, we must always recognize that even though that is true, that there are some sins that have greater consequences and destruction here. All right? And so, though to God, sin is sin, and sin kills, we also have to live with the understanding that not only is that true, but that certain sins bring more destruction and misery here than others, right? One time, a um, pastor I was talking to, he had committed adultery, and I'm sitting across the table from him years ago. And, um, and he said, well, you know, I mean, Jesus said that if you look at a woman with lust, um, you've um, already committed adultery, so what's the difference? And I scooted up on my seat forward, and I looked at him in the face. I said, would you rather I lust after your wife or have sex with her? Real simple. So we all understand exactly what the Bible says until we end up there. Now we say, well, what does it say in the Greek? Shut up. We're not very forthright, are we? God is the epitome of light and pureness. The word wickedness here 
we have seen before, and it means what labors to bring misery and painful trouble. We saw it in verse 3 last week. Yahweh cannot nor will ever be one with such evil or approve of it as being good, nor ignore it as being bad. Yet God knows the evil of the people and nations, and he will use that to judge other nations and his own people. That bothers us. Do you think it's a possibility that God is using Islam to judge America? Ooh, X, you really crossed the line now. Really? I just give you one sin that I believe God is judging us. 57 million babies were destroyed in the womb. Need no other. Need no other. Now, God does not make the people do the evil. God knows the evil they will do, and God will use that to glorify himself. Simple. For me, it's a problem. For God, it's no problem. And it's my problem. God's not concerned about my problem. He's not worried about it. not biting his nails. Hmm. Prophet Habakkuk couldn't escape that it appeared God was approving of evil. He was confused and perplexed as God had declared he was going to use Babylon. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? Verse 13. Amazing. The word look there. Is the same as the previous one to show regard with some sense of approval and condolence. There is no approval by God. There is no permissiveness acceptable by God here. The one dealing treacherously were the Babylonians. They had been used by God to join with the Assyrians, as you know, to judge the northern kingdom of Israel already. So God already used Babylon in the north 100 years earlier, just about. Now they were going to be used by God to judge the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. Now, when God is using the northern kingdom, prophets of the south, oh, yeah, yeah, they're idolaters, this and that, but now it's coming home, right? It always seems a little different, right? Wow. Habakkuk was confused and perplexed because God was not judging the Babylonians at the present. And you and, and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Here's the human rationale. Habakkuk confirmed his suspicion about God and that Yahweh was saying nothing about the evil of Babylon. He says, you hold your tongue when the wicked devours, referring to the Babylonians. He concluded, this is not right. This is wrong. Now, I know you've never told God that, but I have. When we get into our own little intellectual reasoning and rationales and what's fair and what's not fair, hmm, and we put God on trial and I don't know why he didn't call me for this one. I could have helped him out. Habakkuk considered the people of Judah better than the Babylonians. Judah is indicated by a person more righteous. Babylon is indicated by the word he. The mistake was in distinguishing one worse than the other, when in fact both were an affront and an offense to God by their ungodly living. You see, when I pick someone to compare myself, I always pick someone worse than me. I'm not stupid. This way I end up looking good. But that one is less wicked than the other before God means absolutely nothing. They're both going to be judged, right? Wow. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. 
Wow. So God, knowing what's going to happen before it happens, declares what's going to happen, but he's not the author of the evil that happens. Are we clear on that? Because if God is the author of the evil, forcing people to do evil, then God would be responsible for their sin, and then how could he judge them and be holy, just, and good? Couldn't. Now, Calvinists accuse God of predestining the fall. So God is really responsible for sin. You know how blasphemous that is? That God predestined Adam to fall, therefore God is responsible for the fall of Adam because Adam had no choice? If he didn't have a choice, why did they say, don't eat, and if you do, you're going to die? Is God lying? Do you know how blasphemous that doctrine is? Wow. The holiness of God guarantees the judgment that he will pour out on the world during the great tribulation is just. Listen, Revelation 4, 8 through 11, it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around the, and within. And they do not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There's holy again. Who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne, who lives forever and ever, eternity. And the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him and lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and you, by you, they will exist and are and were created. Revelation 4, 8 through 11. This is the throne of grace. The throne of God for the great tribulation where he will pour out. Is God wrong in doing that? Absolutely not. Absolutely just. Absolutely perfect. The holiness of God is attested at the cross of Calvary about the new covenant as God the Father through, uh, through his son, Jesus, um, makes the way for us to be forgiven of sins and makes man uh, one with him by his holiness. By making Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, by God sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh in Romans 8.3. By God commending his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I presume you qualify. Romans 5.8. And he died for us. By being justified by faith, we have peace through Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves is the gift of God. Romans 5, 1, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By Jesus becoming the propitiation for our sin, not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Having all this in mind, we can better understand the cry of Jesus from the cross. Listen to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 1, 22, 1. He gives you the reason in verse 3. Because you're holy. God the Father was so serious about sin, he's so holy, he can't have nothing to do with sin, that he made his holy son become literal sin, and therefore the Father could not have anything to do with him. God could not hear him, answer him. God had to judge him for me. Are we clear about sin and holiness? Wow. God cannot compromise, tolerate, or ignore sin as it doesn't exist. He's holy. The attribute of God's holiness is the check and balances in the system that guarantees the absolute perfection of his justice and righteous domain. Listen to the scriptures. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Psalm eighty nine fourteen. God's holiness demands judgment of sin in our Right view of sin can only come as we have a right view of holiness. The holiness of God is the glory of his deity and should not be taken lightly. Without holiness, no man shall see God. Hebrews twelve fourteen says. The confirmation of the new covenant is stated clearly again throughout the book of Hebrews. Listen to some of the verses. Hebrews seven twenty two. By so much better... Or so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Hebrews 8.6 For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Hebrews 8.7 
because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 8.8. So there's still now what he's done with us, he's going to do with Israel in the millennial kingdom. Hebrews um, uh, 8, 9 on down, he says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them out of the hand. Um, by the hand and let them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, the Old Testament. And I will disregard them, says the Lord Yahweh, for this is the covenant that I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, the future, the remnant, says the Lord Yahweh. I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. This will take place in the millennial kingdom. The prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 31, 33, 14 through 16. Wow. And that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Hebrews eight thirteen. No atonement is animal sacrifice anymore. Only in Jesus Christ. You see, God's holiness makes a way for our prayers to be heard and accepted through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is the acknowledgement of our whole, of his holiness as he comes, uh, we come to him. Um, Jesus uh, taught the disciples, teach us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Matthew 6, 9. Holy is your name. First thing we're to acknowledge. Jesus said to his disciples, if you then, being evil, know how to good give to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Luke eleven four. He's talking to believers. Not non-believers, his disciples. God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, as you know. The Spirit also bear, helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Romans eight twenty six. Listen to Isaiah. For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Revivals for the Christian who is backslidden or is cold. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. You regenerate non-believers, you revive believers. Are we clear on that? Humble repentance. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest of, by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, listen carefully, that is his flesh, and having the high priest over the house of God, let us draw near what, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and of our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. Who's he talking to? Believers. Without wavering. Great exhortation. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Listen carefully. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. That seals the whole the whole teaching. <laughs> Reason alone misunderstands God. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. The nature of the justice of God was based on being holy. And so, here you have Habakkuk, hearing God was going to use Babylon to judge Judah, presented a second problem complaint to God. It's just characterized by the nature of God. It's eternally holy. No fault, no failure, no mistake. The nature of the covenant of God was to live holy. And the nature of the justice of God was based on being holy. God has to judge sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. We love you, we thank you. Lord, we just uh, lift our hearts to you. You deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. We do thank you, Lord. And Father, we thank you for this prophet and this book, and we pray as we move through it that, Lord, you would deal with each of us where we're at. And Lord, we do pray for mercy, your mercy and your grace.
As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. There is none good, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so God, in his mercy and grace, has provided that way of escape through Jesus Christ, that we agree with him. He does not agree with us. And he will be sufficient for all that we have committed because it is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you don't know the Lord as Savior or maybe you're over the Internet, then God would knock on the door of your heart that you might respond in repentance with a contrite spirit, humble heart. And God will deal with you. He will be gracious to you. It's called repentance. Your desire is to call upon Jesus to be saved. This is your prayer to him. He's going to forgive you right now and give to you eternal life. This is your prayer to him. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. Father, I ask you to forgive me in Jesus' name for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.